1223, Genghis Khan's army invaded the territory of the Kievan Rus. They established the Khanate of the Golden Horde, awesome name, by the way, and most of Eastern Europe fell under Mongol control. It was under this oppressive regime that one principality rose to unite the people of Eastern Europe against Mongol rule. Ivan III joined the various princes together and they overthrew the Khanate. He then went on to triple the size of his territory, creating an empire. When Ivan married the niece of the last Byzantine emperor, he established his new territory as the successor state to the Roman Empire. His main city, Moscow, was nicknamed the Third Rome. Ivan the Great and his two successors, his son Vasily and his grandson Ivan, later Ivan the Terrible, expanded Russian territory and centralized power as an authoritarian ruler. Since then, Russia has been a land of conquest, corruption, and control. It took just three generations to create the Russian Empire under the rule of the all-powerful Tsar, and 500 years later, we're still dealing with the consequences. Tired of hearing about Russia all the time? I'm sorry, I can't help you there. I'm just going to make it worse today. I mean, send an email to Trump or Putin and just tell them to stop doing crazy things all the time. But if you're one of those people who vaguely knows that you're supposed to hate Russia and think Putin is bad, but you really aren't completely sure why, then I got you. Today, we're looking at Russia since the end of the Cold War. Sorry, there's no Rocky references in this episode, but I will reference Putin shirtless no less than twice. You're welcome. Welcome to season two of Antisocial Studies. I'm calling this season Historical Context, and it's my opportunity to talk about whatever I feel like talking about. Thank you very much. I'll pick out a new topic each week and give you the backstory. Maybe you'll understand the world today. Nah, maybe not. But at the very least, I hope you'll be able to pepper your cocktail party conversations with facts that trick people into thinking you know what you're talking about. That's the key, kids. Today's episode is called Russia, or what the hell, Sinky? This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. One, 1990s Russia. I joke that the 90s in U.S. history should be called the Seinfeld years because they were sort of about nothing. Well, in Russia, the 90s should be called the Daria years because things were bleak, y'all. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, the territory that had taken 500 years to build up dissolved into 15 countries. The largest country that was created is the Russian Federation. That's what we call Russia. But there are many Russian-speaking people living in the newly independent states, and a lot of people in Russia see that land as rightfully theirs. But I mean, what have nationalism and borders ever caused a problem in history, right? Russia came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union in a terrible economic situation. Price controls led to massive shortages of essential products, and major cities had to introduce rationing for the first time since World War II. The president of Russia at the time was a reformer named Boris Yeltsin. His idea was that the Russian economy needed shock therapy, rip off the band-aid, so to speak. He abruptly ended all price controls, he cut government spending, and he opened up foreign trade. All of this had the immediate effect of devastating the standard of living for most of the Russian population. The ensuing depression was at least on level, if not worse than, the Great Depression in the U.S. and the terrible hyperinflation in Germany before Hitler rose to power. So, not good. 
The most important aspect for our purposes of this new economy was rapid privatization, or selling off state-owned businesses to the highest bidder. They quickly sold off 45,000 government-owned businesses, lucrative industries like energy, mining, and communication. What they ended up with was a new oligarchy, or ruled by a small group of people, of insanely rich tycoons who owned the majority of Russian business. Let me be more specific here. Listen to these numbers. 46% of Russia's total GDP was controlled by companies that were owned by eight men. Eight men owned half of Russia's wealth. These are the oligarchs, and they have enormous influence in the Russian government. These guys are important because these are the people that you might have been hearing about in relation to the investigation into the Trump campaign and its possible ties to Russia. People close to the Trump campaign have met in the past with Russian oligarchs, but it's difficult to know if they were colluding on behalf of the government or just doing some business on the side. It makes it really hard to investigate the Russian government because they have so many informal advocates and middlemen. The oligarchs almost never have an official government position. Why do they need that? They're the head of some massive company. But they do have so much influence that it's really hard to imagine anyone speaking with them without feeling like they're basically speaking to an official representative of Russia. For example, 11 days before Trump's inauguration, his personal lawyer and human punching bag, Michael Cohen, met with a Russian oligarch at Trump Tower. According to video footage and another person at the meeting, they discussed their mutual desire to improve U.S.-Russian relations. Just a few weeks later, the Russian oligarch's American investor awarded Cohen with a $1 million consulting contract. Like, what is he consulting them on? I mean, maybe the oligarch has some personal matters that need to be attended to, a la Stormy Daniels, but the FBI is concerned that, quote, consulting really just means speaking informally as a back channel on behalf of the Trump administration. But this is the point. It's done in such a circuitous way that we may never know. The oligarch is not technically a Russian government official, and he didn't actually hire Michael Cohen, his American friend who invests money on his behalf did. Ugh. It's a mess. We'll talk about it a little bit more later, but let's get back to the 90s. Politically, the new Russian legislature was disjointed and incoherent. They opposed Boris Yeltsin, and he responded by, you know, calling up the military, like you do. Tanks shelled the Russian White House. That's actually what it's called. And then he adopted a new constitution in 1993 that gave way more power to the executive branch. How good for him. Okay, let's go into this for a second because it's important. The Russian government is in many ways set up very similar to our own in the United States. They have three branches of government, a president who's elected by the people, a legislature made up of two houses that enact laws, yada, yada, yada. I mean, just watch Schoolhouse Rock. But here's the thing. In the United States, the president is just the head of the executive branch. The other two branches are separate and are supposed to act as a check on his power. But the head of the executive branch in Russia is actually the prime minister, he deals with the day-to-day -day BS of running a government, while the president dictates overall policy. And this is because the president in Russia is actually above all three branches of government. It would be as if Trump today were the head of the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. Whoa. Czar much, anyone? So, in addition to the traditional executive powers of a president, the Russian president can also do a few other things. His appointed prime minister forms the entire government in his name, which means that whoever is in charge wields a ton of informal power. People who want jobs definitely want to be on his good side. 
And the president also has power over the legislature. He can dissolve the Duma, the lower house. He can call for new elections. He can submit a referendum or a public vote directly to the people. Imagine if our president could just dissolve the House of Representatives and call for a new election whenever he wanted. Congressmen would want to stay on his good side so that they could keep their job. On the Kremlin's website, it describes the president as an overall coordinator of the three branches of government who is, quote, distanced by law from each branch. Side note, the Kremlin is the general nickname for the Russian government. It's like when Americans say Washington when they really mean the whole political system. The president's job, according to the Kremlin, is to make sure each branch is doing their job and if not, redirect them. It's an enormous amount of power, especially when it's wielded by someone who is politically savvy and not above using less than ethical methods to maintain that power, but we'll get to Putin in a second. So throughout the 1990s, Russia was in the depths of an economic crisis that was only made worse by the Russian financial crisis of 1998. At this point, the central bank had to default on its debt, inequality was skyrocketing in the late 90s, and the once proud Soviet Union was struggling to stay afloat. Also, since the breakup of the USSR, regions that Russia had viewed as part of their territory had broken off to form their own self-determined nation-states, taking with them Soviet resources, weapons, and sometimes a rather large population of ethnic Russians. Meanwhile, President Boris Yeltsin was unpopular with a lot of Russians because he worked so closely with the West. I mean, remember, the Russians had seen us as the evil enemy for 50 years— Just imagine how we would react if all of a sudden our president was super chummy with our old Cold War nemesis. Oh, well, I guess you don't have to imagine it, but as you can tell, we don't like it very much. I mean, also, it didn't help that their president, Yeltsin, seemed to have some difficulty staying sober. For example, on a 1995 visit to Washington, D.C., Yeltsin was found in the middle of the night out on Pennsylvania Avenue in his underwear trying to get a cab to go get pizza. I mean, we've all been there, right? But we just weren't the president of Russia at the time, thank God. All of this is to say that when Boris Yeltsin announced he was resigning in 1999, his replacement would step into a position of enormous power in a country living through the wake of a massive military defeat and humiliation while experiencing an economic and national identity crisis. Sound familiar? 1930s Germany, anyone? Well, I'm sure it'll be fine. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. It's hard for me to imagine that Putin was ever a child. He strikes me more as the never-aging vampire sort of guy, and not in a sparkly Edward kind of way. I mean, you should look up images of him as a child. He looks exactly the same, and it is both hilarious and creepy. But Vladimir Putin was born in 1952 in Leningrad. It's now St. Petersburg. He had an incredibly difficult childhood, as many people growing up in the Soviet Union did. Both of his older brothers died before he was even born, one in infancy and the other of diphtheria during the siege of Leningrad during World War II. His mother was a factory worker, and his father was drafted to a submarine fleet in the Soviet Navy, during which he was severely wounded. His grandmother was killed by Germans occupying part of Eastern Europe in 1941, and two of his uncles disappeared at the war front, presumed dead but never found. It was bleak. Growing up in poverty, it was Putin's dream to be like the Russian spies he saw in the movies. Not American movies, where Russian spies are the scary bad guys. In Russian movies, where Russian spies are the scary good guys. He became a master at the sport of Sambo, and he's a black belt in judo. 
he learned to speak fluent German. After graduating from law school, he joined the KGB. He eventually served in East Germany in the 1980s undercover as a translator. And I really want this part of his life to be more exciting, but he basically had a desk job. He collected newspaper clippings that probably just went into a pile somewhere back in the motherland. What is important about this time in his life is the type of power he witnessed growing up in the Soviet Union. There was no democracy and no constraints on the power of Soviet leaders. There was also a lot of corruption. To get ahead, you had to make connections and know people. Growing up so poor, he was highly motivated to pull himself into the upper echelons of Russian society and bring his friends, mostly from the KGB, with him. When the Soviet Union fell, there were still these traditions of corruption, absolute power, and rule by a few, but the ideology of communism that had held up these ideas into a structure were gone. How can you justify this now if you don't have some noble cause to pursue? In the 1990s, the ideology of communism was replaced by a mad race for power and money, and Putin won. After the Soviet Union fell apart, he got a job working for the mayor of St. Petersburg, his hometown. With his KGB connections, Putin served as the strongman who kept the city in check. He used his position as deputy mayor to rig the system in favor of his friends and business and criminal organizations. And this makes him really popular with the oligarchs, who were going to support his unexpected rise to the presidency. By 1996, he was working for President Yeltsin. He was quiet, smart, and kept a low profile. As others around him opposed the president or tried to grab power in a more obvious way, Putin was always there, waiting. According to friends, Putin never had any real aspirations of political power. He just wanted to make money. But after he was named prime minister under Yeltsin, he realized that maybe he could do both. When Putin was named prime minister, head of the executive branch, most people in Russia were like, who? He was completely unknown until he took on Chechnya. Chechnya was a territory that had informally seceded from Russia in the 90s. Side note, Chechnya has been resisting Russian conquest since 1785, so they're getting pretty fed up. In the 90s, they developed terrorist organizations and rebels that pushed into Russia and attacked the border. In 1999, deadly bombings killed 300 Russians, and Prime Minister Putin blamed Chechen separatists. He went on TV constantly to blame Chechnya and rally support for a military response. His approval rating shot up from 2% to 45%. That same year, Russia invaded Chechnya and reconquered it as a subject state. And here's the kicker. There is a lot of evidence that suggests that the Russian government actually committed the bombings, knowing that it would unite the nation behind a strong central leader like Putin. I mean, there were other, more obvious successors to Yeltsin, but many of them had been critical of some of his policies. Also, the oligarchs viewed Putin as a prime candidate to manipulate and gain more wealth and power based on his experience as deputy mayor in St. Petersburg. To the public, Yeltsin was old, sick, and talked a lot, while Putin was young, athletic, reserved, and incredibly sharp. Worrying that Putin might not be elected by the general public since he was still relatively unknown, Yeltsin instead stepped down and named Putin acting president in 2000. Note, the Russian constitution says that the president cannot serve more than two consecutive four-year terms, but it doesn't limit how many non-consecutive terms someone can serve. So Putin was president of Russia from 2000 to 2008, two four-year terms. Then, since he couldn't run again, his guy Medvedev became president and named Putin prime minister. And I mean, he just kind of kept Putining all over Russia. He was still in charge in everything but name. And then when Medvedev's four-year term was up, 
he didn't run again, and Putin won the presidency by a suspiciously high margin in 2012. He just recently won re-election that will make him president until 2020, but regardless of title, Putin has ruled Russia since 2000. One of the first things Putin had to do when he became president to have real power was to take down the oligarchs, or not take them down, but make them subservient to him. Some oligarchs opposed him, often citing state corruption and hinting at some of Putin's own personal ties to businesses and criminal organizations that were making him a lot of money. And Putin wasn't having any of that. The best example of this is Mikhail Khodorkovsky. In the early 2000s, he was the head of the Yukos Oil Company and one of the richest men in the world. His company was well-respected by Western business, and he had enormous influence and power in Russia. In 2003, early in Putin's presidency, he had a roundtable discussion with Putin and the eight oligarchs. Khodorkovsky made a presentation about how bad government corruption was in Russia. Now, he claims that he had no idea at the time that Putin himself was getting rich off the presidency, which seems unlikely, but either way, he struck a nerve. You should go watch this discussion on YouTube. They filmed it. Putin is really young in his presidency, and he seems weirdly meek around the oligarchs. When they bring up political corruption, he's visibly uncomfortable. He fidgets with his papers, stumbles on his words. He might as well be sweating and pulling at the collar of his suit. But don't worry, he recovered quickly. After that meeting, Khodorkovsky was arrested and sentenced to 14 years in prison. His company was taken, broken up, with some of it being sold to some of Putin's friends, and other parts kept for the government's profit. After this, the oligarchs realized that it was in their best interest that their vision and Putin's vision are aligned. They mostly kept quiet about state corruption, and Putin mostly kept out of their business dealings. Publicly, most Russians didn't know all of that backstory. All that they saw was a man with no political background rising to power unexpectedly and taking on corruption and large monopolies. Even though he was also corrupt and was making a ton of money below the table, from their perspective, Putin was their guy, tackling inequality head-on. This is just one of many similarities I found when I was studying Putin between him and Trump. They both have an extremely loyal base that sees them as an anti-politician who is draining the swamp and fighting for the little guy, even though almost all evidence points to the contrary. In terms of diplomacy, in the first years of his presidency, Putin also appeared to try to reconnect with Europe and the U.S. According to him, his two goals were to, quote, make Russia a strong state again, and I want to reconnect it with the West. Well, that's pretty clear. He spent the first few years of the presidency rebuilding the economy, partly by taking down some of the oligarchs and butting up to Western leaders like George W. Bush and Britain's Tony Blair. He wanted respect for himself and Russia on the global stage, and he seemed to be getting it. But that changed once he began addressing another goal of his, to reunite the Russian Empire. When the Soviet Union fell, Russia lost control of two million square miles of territory. In Putin's view, and the view of many Russians, this wasn't about self-determination and the rise of new nations. This was theft and the separation of many ethnic or linguistic Russians from their motherland. Putin refers to people living in many Eastern European countries today as, quote, co-patriots. It's like Manifest Destiny, Russian style. One of the reasons Putin wanted to regain control over those former satellite states was because he wanted to protect Russia against NATO. Remember, NATO's main goal for the last 50 years had been to contain the Soviet Union. They were the bad guys who had laid siege to Soviet ambitions. And Putin is now worried that they will gain influence with the newly independent states of Eastern Europe, and so he consistently intervenes in those countries' democratic process. 
Sometimes he just makes sure that one of his guys, someone will stay loyal, wins control, but other times he pulls out the military. The best example of this is in Georgia. No, the country, not the state. In 2003, a revolution in Georgia overthrew Putin's ally and put in charge a reformer that was friendly with the West. The new president refused to be a vassal state to Russia, and his government was supported by some of Russia's old enemies, namely the United States. President George W. Bush asserted Georgia's right to self-determination, which Putin saw as a stab in the back. Remember the context. Putin grew up during the Cold War when the U.S. was constantly supporting anti-Russian regimes, sometimes really bad guys all around the world. Now it looked like they were doing the same thing in Eastern Europe, backed by Russia's adversary, NATO. If you remember all of the U.S. interventions around the world during the Cold War, it's not such a crazy thing that Putin didn't trust them at their word, that they said they were just supporting Georgia from afar. It was events like this that made Putin openly adversarial to the West. From his point of view, he had tried to play their game. He'd given press conferences and invited them to visit him in Russia, but the West was still up to their old Cold War tricks. In 2005, Putin turned his focus inward and began openly shunning the West. His new catchphrase became, quote, Putin is Russia and Russia is Putin. It's like something straight out of 1984. For the last 15 years or so, Russia has invaded surrounding territories and supported really brutal regimes like Bashar al-Assad in Syria flouting sanctions and other general disapproval from the West. And a lot of people in Russia love it. Meanwhile, while a lot of Americans were ignoring Russia entirely, I mean, the Cold War is over, right? It's all about China and North Korea now. Putin was flexing his muscle and developing an arsenal of weapons to bring Russia back onto the world stage. And it's only been in the last few years that most people in the West have begun to realize how much we should have been paying attention. Act 3, Russia Today. To understand Russia today, let's take a trip to Ukraine. Quick note, the country is called Ukraine. For some reason, we all want to put a the in front of it. Anyway, Ukraine is a large country in Eastern Europe bordering Russia. And there's an important peninsula attached to Ukraine called Crimea. It sort of dangles down from Ukraine between the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea, and it has been home to Russia's Black Sea naval fleet since the late 1700s. Russia fought a war against the Ottoman Empire for control of the peninsula, appropriately called the Crimean War. They lost, but only because Britain and France stepped in to help the Ottomans, fearful of Russia expanding in Eastern Europe. And turns out, that was a pretty legitimate fear, because after the Ottoman Empire fell, thanks to World War I, the Soviet Union expanded into its former territories in Eastern Europe. Ukraine became a part of the Soviet Union in 1920 and wouldn't become independent until the fall of the communist bloc in 1991. During its time as a Soviet state, 10 million people starved to death in just two years. Stalin's agricultural policies were so terrible that the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, as Ukraine was called, couldn't feed its own people. Also under Soviet control, the entire ethnic population of the Crimean Peninsula was deported to Central Asia and replaced by ethnic Russians. So keep this in mind, because when Putin today talks about all of the Russian co-patriots living in Crimea who wanted to be part of Russia, yeah, they're all there because Russia put them there, like, a few decades ago. Okay, back to the 1990s. After having millions of its people killed and ethnically cleansed, Ukraine was pretty excited to be independent for the first time in a few hundred years. 
91% of the population voted to separate from Russia. Good choice. But Russia was not happy about it. Ukraine is a rich agricultural region. It has a ton of coastline along the Black Sea, and almost all of Russia's pipelines that take oil to Europe run through Ukraine. Also, this land was just seen by Russians as theirs. It's kind of like how Americans viewed Cuba before Castro's revolution. We knew it was technically independent, but we still wanted to treat it like the glamorous part of Florida, where we could listen to Frank Sinatra, sit mojitos, and gamble. We tried to assassinate Castro. We wanted Cuba back. Well, Putin wants Ukraine back, so what do you think is going to happen? Or he'll at least settle for the Crimean Peninsula. In 2004, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine kicked out Putin's guy, the president of independent Ukraine, who basically was a puppet for Putin. And they put in place a pro-Western president, Viktor Yushchenko. Remember the episode from season one where I talked about the words you shouldn't say if you're a Latin American leader who doesn't want to get overthrown by the CIA? So there are similar rules if you're an Eastern European leader who doesn't want to get poisoned by Putin. Just don't say, I'm pro-West, or yay, NATO, or something along those lines. So Yushchenko was like, yay, NATO, and so Putin had him poisoned. Allegedly. But he survived and won re-election. At that point, Putin accepted that he might not get the whole country back, but he was definitely going to get Crimea. Remember how the Soviet Union deported everyone from Crimea and replaced them with Russians? Of course you do. I just told you that like a minute ago. So Putin now uses that as an excuse to take Crimea. It would be like if the United States sent a bunch of sugar planters to an island country like Hawaii and encouraged them to revolt. And then we're like, see, everyone in Hawaii wants to be part of America. Oh, wait, we actually did that? Shoot. So when the Orange Revolution started, Russia launched an online propaganda campaign to discredit the pro-Western president of Ukraine. This campaign was designed to divide the country and stoke fears amongst the Russian-speaking population that made up 37% of the country. Putin figured if he could divide Ukraine by exacerbating pre-existing social tensions, it would be easier for him to control the side that would flock closer to him. Sound familiar? So when ethnic Russians in Crimea began to revolt against the Ukrainian president, Putin sent in soldiers disguised as Crimean rebels. They helped push the revolt forward. Then, using that chaos as an excuse, Putin marched Russian troops into the Crimean Peninsula to protect ethnic Russians. How nice of him. In 2014, Crimea held a closely watched referendum where the majority voted to leave Ukraine and be part of Russia. Putin was like, take that, Ottoman Empire. The invasion and annexation of Crimea is a big deal. It's the first time since World War II that a European border has been altered by force. And it turned out to be kind of a win-win for Putin. He gained territory and more access to the Black Sea, and his base in Russia praises him for bringing glory back to Russia after a rough few decades. In their eyes, between Chechnya, Georgia, and now Crimea, Putin is reuniting the empire, getting the band back together, but at gunpoint. The only problem with the invasion of Crimea was the West. They were not okay with Russia annexing the territory, and they put sanctions on the country as punishment. Russian currency was plummeting, the energy industry was collapsing. What could Putin do? If only he had allies in Europe and the United States. We'll get there in a second. Okay, so why does Russia care about Ukraine so much? Well, first, their people have been pretty consistently pushing for autonomy and democracy for decades now, and they're right on the border with Russia. Putin is scared that some of those ideas might seep into Russia, and, I mean, they already are, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
And like I've already mentioned, Ukraine was the agricultural center of the Soviet Union. Historical memory is a really interesting thing. Generations of Russians spent their whole life relying on Ukraine for food. Even though the Soviet Union is gone, that feeling, that fear of losing the breadbasket is still there. And it's also just a pride thing. Who are they to distance themselves from Russia? At least that's how Putin sees it. The real question you might be asking right about now is, why do we care about Ukraine? Well, my snooty answer is, isn't the pursuit of knowledge enough for you? Do you need a reason to learn about things going on in the world? Oh, you do? You're exhausted from keeping up with the ever-changing geopolitical landscape of the 21st century and don't have time to watch three Putin documentaries and read the entire Wikipedia page on Ukraine? Well, that's fair, I guess. The real reason why you should learn about what happened in Ukraine is because it's happening to us right now. Crimea was a kind of training ground for Putin's new style of warfare. Maybe you've heard of it? It's called cyber warfare, and it's terrifying and confusing, and I think it means the robots will take over soon. So Putin wields a few methods of control, aside from the classics, straight-up corruption, ties to criminal organizations, and military invasions. Putin's real power is information. Within Russia, he controls as much of the media as possible. All news channels are state-owned and are just propaganda machines in support of the government. Hence, all the footage of Putin riding a horse through a river shirtless instead of reporting on the millions of dollars he's made while in office. And Putin realizes the power of the information age, Today in Russia, people are in jail because they liked or shared a post on a social media site that went against Putin's narrative. Remember that the president is in charge of all three branches of government, including the judicial branch. Putin has also developed the most sophisticated cyber army in the world. In 2008, it shut down the internet of the entire country of Georgia. Shut down the internet in a whole country while the Russian troops invaded. Russians have repeatedly hacked the West, stealing information from the Pentagon, hacking into politicians' email accounts. They've hacked into critical infrastructure across the country, including the U.S. power grid. But don't worry, our national power grid is so disjointed across counties and states that it would kind of be impossible for them to shut the country down entirely. Federalism for the win! It's important to note quickly that the first major documented cyber attack was actually committed by the United States. Put a flag in that, Putin. We got there first. The NSA, in conjunction with the CIA and Israeli intelligence, hacked into Iranian nuclear facilities and inserted malware called Stuxnet. Can you tell I have no idea what I'm talking about? Do you insert malware? I don't know. I'm picturing like a physical object, like a black flash drive covered in skulls or something. I don't know. Anyway, they stuck the malware somewhere and it caused a few hundred nuclear centrifuges to silently accelerate until they destroyed themselves. But this isn't an episode about our cyber warfare. Back to Russia. So, of course, in 2016, Russians hacked into the Democratic National Committee's email and published, via WikiLeaks, emails that fueled the growing divide within the Democratic Party. For example, some of the emails seemed to hint that the DNC leadership had worked to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign. This is the event that led to the recent, like recent in mid-July, indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence agents. Fun fact, these agents are part of a cyber espionage group known as Fancy Bear, which is what I imagine Putin calls himself when he compliments himself in a mirror. Russia has been responsible for hacks, information leaks, cutting off vital services, all online for years now. In Estonia in 2007, they essentially shut down the entire country. Online banking was inaccessible, government employees couldn't email each other, and the media outlets couldn't distribute news. 
And that was just because they had a diplomatic argument about a Soviet war memorial. The point of all of this is that Putin has spent the last 10 years developing these capabilities and practicing them on smaller countries. And he also uses this tactic on his own people to convince them of his version of the story. During the pro-democratic revolution in Ukraine, Russia distributed online propaganda that made it seem as though ultra-nationalists and neo-Nazis were behind the revolt. Disinformation and division, especially via social media and fake online news reports, is Putin's bread and butter. So, do people in Russia oppose Putin? Do they see his corruption? Of course they do. In the most recent presidential election, seven other people ran against him. It's brave. But even though there were eight total candidates, Putin won 77% of the vote. If that seems suspiciously high, good job, you've been paying attention. And other people do oppose Putin. Remember, the president of Russia is in charge of all branches of government. He can help make laws, administer them, and bring people to justice. Air quotes. The most famous dissenters are the Russian feminist protest group Pussy Riot. This is a small group of about a dozen women who stage guerrilla performances and acts of public protest. They're total badasses. Their most controversial act was in 2012, when they staged a punk prayer protest in Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior against the Orthodox Church's support of the government and the lack of separation between church and state. Three women were convicted of hooliganism and sentenced to two years in prison. Most recently, four women dressed up as police officers and stormed the field during the World Cup final. Okay, so to recap, Putin grew up poor with the collapse of the Soviet Union looming in the distance. Just as he was starting to work his way up in his career in the KGB, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. He found his footing when his skills at manipulation and his desire to get rich combined nicely with a job in politics. And he has spent the last 20 years trying to get Russia back on equal ground with the West. And it would appear that he's done that. In 2016, a senior Kremlin advisor told the Russian National Security Conference in Moscow that Russia was working on new cyber strategies that was the equivalent of testing a nuclear bomb and would, quote, allow us to talk to the Americans as equals. Even if that's exaggeration, it can't be good. And within all of this context, what are the two things that the international community could do to help Putin's cause? Lift sanctions and weaken NATO. So, Putin has also turned his cyber army toward the West, distributing propaganda, fueling division, and influencing elections so that far-right candidates are winning across Europe. But the icing on the top of the cake for Putin? The election of Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin has built a world where Russia is relevant and powerful again, and the world let it happen. He used his cyber army to support far-right candidates across the West, they used their power to influence Brexit voters, hacking into the emails of leaders who wanted to stay with the EU and stoking xenophobic fears about immigrants and Syrian refugees that possibly swayed people in the middle toward leaving the liberal EU. And in the United States, Russia definitely wanted Trump to win. He said it himself on live TV just a few weeks ago in Helsinki. When asked, quote, did you want President Trump to win? He responded very quickly and emphatically, yes, I did. Of course he did. Trump campaigned on isolationist policies that would turn the U.S. away from entangling alliances with Europe, like Putin's enemy, NATO. Trump himself is also very clearly a fan of Putin. And if you don't believe me, here are just a few of a long list of examples. In 2013, Trump tweeted, quote, 
Do you think Putin will be going to the Miss Universe pageant in November in Moscow? If so, will he become my new best friend? In 2014, Trump said on Fox Business, quote, We just left Moscow. He could not have been nicer. He was so nice and so everything, but you have to give him credit that what he's doing for that country in terms of their world prestige is very strong. In that same interview, Trump called the invasion of Crimea, remember, it's the first time since World War II that a European border has been altered by force. Trump called that invasion, quote, so smart. When you see the riots in a country because they're hurting the Russians, okay, we'll go and take it over. And he really goes step by step by step, and you have to give him a lot of credit. In 2015, quote, I will tell you that I think in terms of leadership, he's getting an A. Of course Putin wanted him to win. Did the Trump campaign collude with Russia as they attempted to sway the election? I have no idea. We'll have to wait for Robert Mueller whenever he emerges from his basement where he spends hours weeping into a pile of tweet transcripts. That's how I imagine the FBI investigation. But what we saw in Helsinki a few weeks ago shouldn't surprise anyone. In a lot of ways, Trump and Putin are weirdly similar. They both were raised in the Cold War era where strength won out. They both were raised on the outside. Trump was never taken as seriously in the business world as he would have liked, and Putin grew up poor and only made it to a low-level translator post in the KGB. They both have enormous self-confidence. Putin's is more reserved, but I mean, any 65-year-old who publishes that many photographs of himself shirtless definitely has an ego. And they both gained power by making deals and surrounding themselves with loyal yes-men. When someone said no, you're fired. They both have felt disrespected and not taken seriously by the establishment. For Trump, that was Washington and the upper echelons of the business world. For Putin, he was pushed aside by the West and not taken seriously. And now they're both out on a mission to prove their enemies wrong. Okay, this is just my humble opinion. I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychoanalyst. So feel free to skip this part. But I think that the best way to understand Trump's relationship with Putin is also the simplest explanation. He likes him. Trump admires Putin. Putin has made it. He's commanded respect and is viewed by the world as strong and a person to be taken seriously. When Putin has been accused of violence, like the invasion of Crimea or assassinating opponents and journalists, Trump's response is consistently to praise his strong leadership style. For years, Trump has commented about how great Putin is, how he wants to be his friend, and how Putin would probably think Trump was a genius. It's so simple. Trump likes Putin. He's the cool kid, and Trump wants to be his friend. On a slightly more complex note, maybe Trump sees Putin as the ultimate challenge to showcase his art of the deal. In various comments over the years, Trump has stated that the problem between the U.S. and Russia was just that Putin hated Barack Obama, and so nothing could ever get done. Before he was president, Trump promised that Putin would like him, and Trump could work with him. At the same time that he was praising Putin's skills and manipulation and saying that he was, quote, outsmarting the United States, he was also bragging that Trump could negotiate with Putin. He wouldn't be outsmarted. Oh, God, I wish I could have been a fly on that wall in the room in Helsinki. We may never know exactly what the relationship between Trump and Putin is, but it's okay. It's not like the fate of our planet hangs in the balance or anything. So, should we be afraid of a war with Russia? No. But... Should we be alert about Russia expanding its power and influence across Eastern Europe and Central Asia? Yes. It's like 1930s all over again. We have a known dictator who willfully abuses human rights in his own country. 
he has invaded and taken territory by arguing that he's just reuniting his Russian ethnic group. I know it's normally extreme, and I know historians love to do this, to compare anyone to Hitler, but come on. And the meddling in the 2016 election is not going away. Quick note, I take issue with the term meddling. It makes it sound trivial. It's not. Did they hack into voting machines and change votes? No. At least as far as all the evidence we have right now tells us. But they did exploit our society's divisions to help make the 2016 campaign one of the most brutal, polarizing, and exhausting in our history. That doesn't mean Americans aren't also to blame for how 2016 went, but it didn't help that there were hackers halfway around the world pushing false stories that just made each side angrier, and it's made it harder for us to come together in the aftermath. So the best thing you can do to fight Putin? Don't play his game. Don't fall into your own online echo chamber. That comment section is not going to change anyone's mind, especially since half those people are really probably just bots using an algorithm to say the most offensive thing possible. Instead, talk to other real people. Seek out different perspectives. Assert your freedom of speech, something people in Russia can't do, and do your research. If something you see online seems fake or too good to be true, it probably is. If you don't have time to do your research, just keep listening to my podcast, where I will do the Wikipediaing for you. I promise. To be continued. Thanks for listening to Antisocial Studies. Don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks. Thanks.